Welcome to the latest episode of Evidence into Action, the EEF podcast, focusing on all things education, where we speak to experts in the field, from researchers, people who work in policy, to school leaders and teachers about the important educational topics of today. Our focus of this episode is understanding disadvantage. It's not the first time we've talked about this area before because we know how crucial it is to schools and society. But in this episode, we're going to dig a little bit deeper and try and go back to understanding what we mean by disadvantage, how it plays out in the education system, um, schools and beyond. Our first guest is Dr. Rebecca Montague, Head of Research and Policy at the Sutton Trust. Our second guest is Mark Rowlands, Pupil Premier Advisor at Unity Schools Partnership. Um, he spends a lot of time talking about pupil premium disadvantage to schools, so um, very, very popular and well-known. And finally, the brilliant Jill Ferns, Director of Lancashire Research School, and she's a brilliant school leader and teacher. Um, I've been to her school. It's a brilliant primary school um, full of great teachers, so be looking forward to hear from Jill. My co-host is... Kirsten Mole, this isn't your first rodeo, Kirsten. This isn't your first uh, podcast, but do you want to just introduce yourself again? Yeah, hi everyone. So, senior content manager at EEF, really looking at that that bridge between research and practice, and and how we can strengthen those links. Really looking forward to getting into this conversation. It's fascinating, isn't it? How kind of the policy and school practice interact. So, yeah, looking forward to the discussions today. So, yeah, lots of questions in that regard. Policies, school practices, the, the wider impact of society and disadvantage and, and, and those complex interactions. So let's talk to our first guest, Dr. Rebecca Montague, as just stated, Head of Research and Policy at the Sutton Trust. Uh, Becky, just can you introduce yourself and a little bit about that role and what the Sutton Trust does for those who don't know? Yeah, so the Sutton Trust is a charity which champions social mobility from birth to the workplace. And a really key part of that is producing high quality research that looks at the root causes of low social mobility. So that's the bit that I work on, looking at what actually are the reasons for low social mobility and what can we do to try to improve social mobility, especially looking within the education system. Yeah, that's great. Can you talk a little bit about then um, social mobility? What do we mean by social mobility? And then probably we'll get on to this interaction between disadvantage and understanding disadvantage. So at its core, a country which has high social mobility would be one in which what kind of background a young person comes from. So whether their parents are high earners, whether they went to university themselves or went on to a professional job themselves would have very little bearing on where someone themselves then ends up. Whereas a country that has low social mobility is where actually the kind of family you're from, what your parents did, that educational experience has a really big bearing on where you yourself then end up going on through both education and in your journey into the workplace. Yeah, and I think, so. I'm, I'm sure it'll come up in terms of these interactions between what happens before children ever get to school, but then some of those things about going to university, having different options beyond the school gates. Um, just in terms of um, the, the broader work around understanding the context for social mobility, what, what type of things have, have the Sutton Trust done to understand disadvantage and how it's playing out in the system right now? 
Yeah, so we look at it right the way from birth going onwards. So looking, for instance, in the early years, specifically some of the issues we've looked at is who can actually access early education. It's not equal in terms of access in the UK at the moment. Looking also at the workforce, so who are educating young children in early years provision and how could we try to improve that to make it work better as early years education. And also looking at um, kind of wider support for family, things like Sure Start or family hubs. And we've kind of followed as a lot of Sure Start centres, which used to be that kind of wraparound support have actually closed. Family hubs are a start to replace them and in some ways are quite good practice. But we really need that kind of wraparound support for all families. And that's something that we've been looking at as well. Going into schools then. So the EEF do a brilliant job at what can you actually do to support a disadvantaged young person in the classroom? What should a school kind of at its core be doing? I'd say where the Sutton Trust differs is we look at some of the kind of wider questions around that. So we look at things like what is the current impact of the cost of living crisis in schools? Some of the wider policy issues around teacher recruitment and retention and how that's having a different impact in more or less uh, kind of advantaged schools. We look at school admissions, so who's getting into which schools, particularly in state schools. We know that there's really big differences between state schools and some of them are quite socially exclusive. So we look at what are the reasons for that? How could that kind of be tackled? As well as things around access to tutoring, careers education and how that differs between schools, how schools are using pupil premium. And also we look at kind of wider life skills, things like how young people are developing, say, communication skills and how that can differ for different kinds of young people. Now, we do cover quite a lot. So that's early years and schools. Yeah. We do also do a lot of work and an increasing amount of work on apprenticeships. So quite often people can think that just by the very virtue that an apprenticeship exists, that that's going to be great for social mobility. And the more opportunities that are available, absolutely, that is positive for social mobility. But too often, especially for kind of the higher level apprenticeships, actually, they can be just as socially exclusive as, say, a top degree. And that's something we really try to highlight. And we're one of kind of the few organisations looking in that space and really holding people to account on accessibility to apprenticeships. Access to university is also one of the things we're quite famous for. So a lot of people will know yeah. us for, for instance, how only a small number of schools end up sending a really large proportion of young people to Oxbridge. And we do look at that and look at both universities as a whole and the kind of most selective, most difficult to get into universities. Now, we care about all of those. And it is very much that those most competitive universities are kind of a, a signal in the workplace that is quite often still used to push people into the very top professions, the highest paying jobs. So we do think it is important to look at those specifically, but we do look at university access as a whole. And then we also look at actually progression and entry into the workplace. So if you're from a poorer background, what are the barriers to you once you get into the workforce? And how can we make sure and how can employers make sure you're able to progress once you are in the workplace as well? So. It really is from birth all the way through to what happens in the workplace. We cover it all. 
Yeah, that's that's brilliantly comprehensive. I have a couple of questions. So I kind of recognise that kind of from early years to access to apprenticeships in university. And a few of the kind of points come out there about kind of selective access, limited access, kind of, and, and trying to equalise that. One of the things that this probably not the, the kind of say kind of as meteor research, but you've often um, shared about kind of how politicians and certain professions have this kind of disproportionate um, proportion of students from selective schools. Why, why do you think it's important to address that and kind of, you know, what what is the theory that if we had more social mobility in those professions that, that we would be better off? So I think it's really important to say that social mobility matters at every level. And it's absolutely not just about who gets into those top jobs. It's about opportunities being kind of equally yeah. spread across the income spectrum. But a lot of people in those top roles and in reports like Elitist Britain, where we looked across British society at who's going into which jobs, those are the jobs that really determine a lot of key issues across society, which impact all of us. So some of the things we look at in that report are things like what are the backgrounds of our politicians? Obviously, they're making decisions that impact on all of us in a really direct way day to day. But if they're all coming from a really common set of experiences and they don't have that breadth of experience that is more representative of the country as a whole, we think that's a big problem in terms of understanding the population as a whole, making policies that are really going to reflect everyone and not making mistakes because they say miss something and it's not just politics politicians the media those kind of classic ones that are important it's also about things like the arts as well and who's getting to the top of those fields because the arts are how we collectively tell stories to each other and again if you people all from quite similar backgrounds similar experiences going on to have those top roles in the arts then the stories that are told are all going to be quite similar and reflective of that similar experience so we do think who gets into those jobs does really matter so so in truth then there's something about understanding advantage to to fully understand disadvantage as well and and some of those um different experiences uh my second follow-up is just around given that span of work around early years around university access and given you know the kind of the the broad recognition that COVID probably was deeply unhelpful in lots of ways for society, but also around social mobility and around um, access and ex- the experience of, of some disadvantaged young children and, and young adults, I, I'm asking a bit for a kind of a surface response, I think. But broadly, what what are some of the things that the certain trust research has indicated about the post-COVID reality? Yeah, so throughout the entire pandemic and post, we've been looking across all of those life stages to try to better understand what the impact of the pandemic has been. And it really has been everywhere. So if you go back to the early years, there are children who are just starting in kind of primary school now, who are not school ready, who are perhaps needing to be potty trained at the point they come into the school. And primary schools are seeing that in much greater numbers than they ever did before because of those young children's experience during the lockdowns. And that is going to carry on through the education system for years to come. Because if a teacher's happen to worry about sorting out potty training for somebody, that's time they're not spending on a lot of those kind of core skills, which are so important to, you know, 
getting school ready to start being in the education system yeah. as you go along. So that we really think is going to have long term repercussions, but it's happening at every point through. Um, so all kids who are in school at the moment will have been impacted by the pandemic in some way. And when we're seeing school results come out, we are seeing the impact of that. So we know that the attainment gap has gone back to where it was 10 years ago. So we've lost 10 years of progress in trying to close that gap. And our research has helped us to understand some of the underlying reasons for that, both in how actually school experiences differed considerably in the pandemic. So if you look, if you take the absolutely extreme example, some kids day one would have gotten, a, you know, kind of room to themselves, secure internet connection and a laptop that just they could use. And their school, maybe it was a kind of top private school, had online lessons going with them on day one. So that's the absolute kind of dream scenario during the lockdowns. You get everything there straight away. Then on the other side, there were kids who at the end of the school closures still had never been given a laptop, who were perhaps trying to do their work off of a mobile phone and shared housing with lots of other kids around with like no parent able to support them with that work. And that is, you know, we talk a lot about wider social determinants being really important for how kids do and being really important to social mobility. But schools and education do matter. And that great leveller was taken away for that period of time. And that's going to have really long running ramifications. The other thing that we've been keeping a very close eye on is obviously the catch up provision that's been in place from government. We think that it hasn't been enough. Back when Kevin Collins resigned because of the amount of money that was going in, we absolutely agreed it was not enough funding. The National Tutoring Programme has been really positive. That's kind of been the main bulk of the government's catch-up efforts. And it has really evened out access to tutoring by social economic groups. So that's really positive and something we've not seen previously, that actually people from all social economic backgrounds are getting tutoring through that school provision. But we need much more. There's lots of kids we found through our research who are behind her from disadvantaged backgrounds who aren't getting that catch up provision. And we've only got so long for some of them that they're still going to be in the school system. So that's something we really need to look at. And then going on to university, you've got kids who have really missed out on a lot of formative life experiences. So we actually run a panel with young people who are the same age as a longitudinal study that we're running together with colleagues at UCL to look at the long run impacts of the pandemic. And those young people talking to them directly, as we've done in workshops with them, about things like they've missed prom, they've missed out on getting to have the summers that they would have had with their friends. And I think one of the things we're only just beginning to really understand is the long term mental health impacts of all of that. And those young people are the ones who are now going into university, going onwards to go into the workplace. We know from that longitudinal study, it's called COSMO, the COVID Social Mobility and Opportunity Study, that actually meant like poor mental health and self-reporting of that is going up for this cohort compared to other cohorts of the same age. And it's risen quite steeply, which we think is very likely due to the long term impacts of the pandemic. So really, every single bit of the life course the long-term impacts of this are, are quite substantial. 
Yeah, I think those key stepping stones that you just described right the way through starkly remind us that those efforts matter at every stage of the education system. And it would be great to, to zoom in maybe on a couple of those. So we know the first years of a child's life play a significant role in determining their chances later in life. So if you could give us some insights on how that early development, those early years have been have become a focus for you. Yes, yeah, so the early years is something we've had, you know, an increasing focus on over the last few years. Part of that is from pandemic related aspects that there were young people who missed out on things like going to the supermarket, going around their grandma's house. All of those things are really important for just their day to day development. And there is going to be that kind of long run impact on what happens to those young people from having missed out on those experiences. But also we know that the early years really matters because it sets kids up for what happens next. And at the moment, there's a considerable attainment gap between small children from higher and lower social economic backgrounds. So better off kids and poorer kids at the point that they get into school even to start. So their teachers are playing catch up. They're having to play catch up from the very beginning of their time in the education system. So if we can put funding in there before those gaps start to widen, to put those kids on a more even footing, then that's something that can save you money in the long run because you're investing early and stopping those those gaps from appearing to begin with. One of the things that really got me particularly interested in it was when I learned a lot more about the earliest system we have at the moment and how the government's entitlements work. Because at the moment, we've got a real messy system of some entitlements for working families and some entitlements that are about disadvantage and recognise the important role that the early years plays in getting young people ready for school. But with the government's most recent announcement of the expansion of the 30 hours at three and four into two, actually what we're getting is a system that is much more focused towards getting parents into work and has much less focus proportionately spending wise on getting kids ready to, for school. Now, we've been highlighting for a while the actual disparities in who can access those working entitlements, because it's not just any families and work. You both have to be earning over a certain amount, working at least 16 hours. And there are many families that fall through the net on that, even if they are in work. A really particularly bad example, I think, is that student nurses actually can't access it. So they could be working full time in a hospital and not have any access to this 30 hours to be able to put their child in childcare. Now, that's really bad from a workforce perspective. It's also quite difficult as people move in and out of the workforce to be able to access it and know that childcare's there. So it's not working from that point of view. But we know the extended entitlements, actually only a fifth of families on incomes of 20,000 or less a year are going to be able to access it because they just don't meet the working requirements. Now, we wouldn't say that only working families and their children can get access to school. So why are we saying it in the early years? And what we would really love to see is a minimum entitlement of, say, 20 hours. We know there's evidence that 20 hours is beneficial in early education, that all children would have where it is seen as early education rather than being about access to work, and that the system around access to work like it is in schools, is then laid on top of that to make sure parents can actually do that and access work. But 
there needs to be a bit that is about early education and we're missing that at the moment. Great to reflect those those challenges for, for families and, and certainly at EEF early years is becoming a focus for us as well. And of course, for us, it's that that focus on high quality interactions that are happening on a daily basis and um, launching the early years evidence store to try and give those kind of approaches and practices and exemplify those. But yeah, a, a really important area. And I wonder whether we can kind of zoom to the other end and, and go into universities. So we're not going to kind of ignore the bits that come in between, between, but just exploring university access, but particularly what schools can, can learn from what we know. Yeah, so I think there's a few things that schools can do actually immediately. And whilst I work in the research part of the Sutton Trust, we also have a large part of the charity which does programmes with young people, particularly around access to university. So they are for students who are in year 12 in England and Wales or year 13 in Northern Ireland or S5 in Scotland. They run nationwide and it's a week for those young people to be able to experience university life on a campus, ask people questions, see what that course could be like and really get an idea of is this right for them? Is this the right option? Picture themselves there and get the idea that they can fit in in that environment. So I'd really encourage anyone who is teaching young people of that age range, please do have a look at our programmes and encourage young people to apply. They are weighted in terms of who can get into them on social mobility criteria. That's all outlined on our website. Have a look there and that will explain the criteria to you. Another thing that schools can do straight away if they've got young people who are looking to apply to university is actually recently our innovation team, which is quite a new part of the Sutton Trust work, have been looking at how to get information on the offers that are available to students to be accessible to them. So there's something called contextualised offers, which is where universities look at the context in which someone has achieved their grades and they take that into the into account when making offers. So for instance, it's acknowledging that three A's from a top private school and three A's from perhaps quite a deprived school in a deprived area with perhaps quite a lot of turnover of teachers and a really different situation for a young person to achieve in, that those two grades are not telling you the same thing about someone's potential. Actually, you're getting quite different information from that. So this tool actually lets you look up what contextual offers are available at different universities. It's still quite basic and something we're looking at at the moment is if we might be able to make a better tool that's more usable for young people to be able to look up that information. But we can maybe pop a, a link in the show notes for people to be able to, to get and have a look at those offers. But yeah, we know that university access is still a really big problem. We've just had a report out looking at it over the last 25 years, and there has been some progress on certain measures. For instance, access for children at state schools has really changed and is a lot better than it was. But on other measures, looking specifically at people from lower income families, lower social economic backgrounds, actually there's been really little progress, especially at the top institutions. So it's still a really big problem, but there are things that you can do for your students now to help them to navigate it. Thanks, Becky. That's really valuable. I think, um, you know, we have that experience where a lot of children, you know, first generation going to university and it feels really unfamiliar. It feels quite alien 
um, and, and these support factors. A lot of schools do put a lot in place um, and colleges do a lot of work in this area. But I think that the tools that you're describing um, go an extra step and, and a really crucial one. And, and often we need to kind of, you know, help young adults with that extra step because it'll be the, you know, the kind of last one that might kind of um, bring them to that opportunity and that access that you've talked about. Um, I do want to talk a little bit about a policy that's very prevalent in schools and, and just get perspective on that. So the people premium um, is a policy. It's existed for a number of years. Uh, for people who aren't too familiar, it's um, additional school funding targeted at people from disadvantaged backgrounds because for a lot of the reasons we've described, they don't quite have all the support factors of some of their peers in many cases. And you gave that COVID example. Um, sometimes those differences are quite stark. Uh, can I just get your take on on the policy and kind of um, strengths or challenges or kind of just some of the reality of that additional funding? Yeah, so I'd say just as a start point, overall, the principle of more funding for schools who have got more disadvantaged young people is a, a brilliant one. We know that those students need additional support, that they're maybe not going to be attainment wise where they could be for their potential. So absolutely support the underlying premise of the policy. I think it is great. In terms of its practical use, one of the things that we're particularly worried about is how much that funding does end up getting to the use it's meant to be for. And actually, we found that quite a lot of heads are having to use their people premium funding to plug gaps elsewhere in their school budgets. Now, schools will know they've got a lot of different funding pressures. Cost of living is impacting schools the same as everyone else in terms of things like heating bills going up, all of those kind of challenges. So I say this very much with a, this is very much going to depend on your context and being able to do it. But if you are able to ring fence that funding, please, please do. It is a really important funding pot and those students really do need it. Now that might not be possible within your context, but if you can, please do keep that funding for those students. In terms of the kind of things to spend that funding on, so evidence-backed interventions, absolutely using the EEF toolkit to see which are the best evidence interventions for those students. Particularly if you have, especially if you've got quite a lot of people premium students in your school, looking at investing in generally your teaching, teacher recruitment, retention, making sure you've got high quality teachers as part of that funding, is a really great great way to use it. Um, but in general, yeah, just look at that evidence and use that to guide you when you're putting together your pupil premium strategy. Tutoring as well, and obviously there's also the funding available still through the National Tutoring Programme. We absolutely hope that it continues. It's not currently kind of signed off past the next year, but we're really hopeful that that will continue longer term. But using that to top up the amount you get to be able to spend on the NTP is also a great use of people people premium funding as well. Yeah, the I, I think that crucial point you've made around um, the challenges of ring fencing um, is one that will be all too live for kind of our school audience. Um, and, and then also there are sources and resources to to try and navigate that challenge, although we recognise it's not easy. Um, thank you for that perspective. My last question. Uh, probably a tricky one for someone so expert in policy. Um, and, and 
maybe in you know in the in the next year there'll be a lot of talk about elections and there's already a lot of talk about kind of future policies but if you could implement one national policy because it would be most impactful to reduce disadvantage what would that policy be that's such a tricky one i think at its core and we've talked obviously throughout about the role education plays and how important it is and it absolutely is but i think if you really want to move the dial on social mobility, anything that you can do to reduce child poverty overall, and there's a lot of different policy levers for that. But I think that's the absolute number one thing that policymakers should be looking at to make change here. Because if children are going into schools hungry, if they're living in kind of cramped and overcrowded housing, schools can do a lot but there's only so much they can do to tackle those underlying circumstances. And we want to have kids who are going into schools ready to learn, who are able to do their homework in a safe environment, or they're not worried about what's going on at home. So that's a little bit of a cheat answer. You're going to really push me for one education specific policy. I would say 20 hours for every child in early education as a statutory kind of requirement for all kids putting early education as a core part of the education system alongside schools, colleges, universities, all of it, that we need to put that as part of that system and give every child a right to be able to access that early education. I mean, that's a perfect point to end on. And I think I think every guest will find it really difficult to narrow down on that policy. But I think um, if we can think about, you know, where the evidence might indicate that working and trying to address the disadvantage gap and social mobility as early as possible, we seem to be able to have most impact there. So it feels just like a really good, you know, well-educated, well-judged policy choice. So hopefully um, people are listening and I'm sure our listeners are reflecting upon that question themselves. Uh, It just remains to me say a big thank you. Um, I think the work that you you do as an organization but also your advocacy individually is so powerful and, and that's just come through in that interview really strongly so thank you again for your time okay thanks very much i'm delighted to introduce our second guest mark roland no mark for a long time and, he, and he's a bona fide expert and in this area of supporting schools around this area of disadvantage and people premium policy. And I know he's spoken and worked with and worked in schools. And so we'll get a real sense of understanding disadvantage on the ground, uh, around the country, actually, although I'm sure Mark will talk a little bit about his his locality and some of the work that he does. Um, Mark, um, great to have you on the podcast. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your background? Of course, thank you. And thank you so much for inviting me to, to, to be part of this. Um, yes, I've had the privilege, and uh, and I use that word in, in, intentionally, of working with now over a thousand primary, secondary and special schools across the country, um, looking at what is happening in schools and classrooms where disadvantaged children are thriving, what is happening in schools and classrooms where we're finding this a tougher nut, nut uh, to crack been involved in a number of area-based uh, programs of work from Essex to Cumbria to Cornwall uh, to London, uh, again, working with uh, groups of schools um, to try and, I, I guess, codify what does a really effective approach look like around uh, addressing 
educational disadvantages, this really stubborn feature uh, uh, of our education uh, system. Um, uh, also done some uh, advisory work for DfE uh, around use uh, and impact of pupil premium and We've um, also been involved in setting up a version of pupil premium for the the, the, the Jersey government uh, too. Um, all of that work, I'd say, has had a, you know, a mixed uh, impact, some of it really positive, but 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 again, because these are really complex um, yeah, uh, uh, issues, hasn't always you know, ha- ha- had the impact that we'd have uh, hoped it, it would. Um, it's a complete joy, though. I think it's endlessly fascinating, and uh, and I do think you know, schools absolutely have the, uh, you know, the, the the potential to change children's lives, their directions. I think that's just a wonderful thing to to, to be involved in. Um, I personally grew up in a low income family uh, my, my, myself. So I, I, I do think I can empathise with some of these uh, challenges in, in, in part. Thanks, Mark. And I think that sentiment um, should drive the whole podcast. But also, I think that experience that you just described working with around a thousand schools, um, that really is kind of extensive. But based on that expertise and uh, mileage, uh, I know sometimes I've spoken to you and you're in a car, Mark, traveling from one school to another. Um, can you talk a little bit about what you think are those essential ingredients of better understanding disadvantage so we don't fall for kind of stereotypes and labels? Yes, th- th- thank you. I work really closely on trying to codify, to sort of, uh, set out what those principles are. are, are. Um, I think we're getting better and better at that all the time. And I found it particularly instructive working with other research school colleagues like John Eaton down in Kingsbridge around clarity of communication. Um, I think those are um, around culture, values, uh, expectations of of, of children um, and families uh, from low income backgrounds. I think that's a really uncomfortable conversation to have at at, at, at times. it might take a sharp look in the mirror around what we're doing rather than mirror, mirror on the wall. Uh, and we absolutely have to get rid, uh, and again, I use that language intentionally, around the deficit discourse uh, around disadvantaged pupils. Our disadvantaged pupils and their families are not a problem to be solved. There are pupils, and it's about us getting better at what we do to help them to, 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 to thrive. And I think... Each of these sort of principles uh, that I'm going to talk about are, are, are really hard to do. They're relatively easy to say, they're hard to do, but getting rid of that deficit discourse, having the highest of expectations and around having a, a culture where everybody is responsible um, for positive experiences in school for disadvantaged pupils, from members of the you know school reception to those working in the classroom, to curriculum leaders, midday supervisors and more. Everybody being responsible, everybody having the highest of expectations around what children uh, can achieve. Secondly, um, assessment, not assumption or generalizations around children. Uh, um, When I talk about assessment, I don't just mean standardized tests, but observations of children's learning behaviors, conversations with pupils, conversations with families, conversations with teachers too. 
as the experts in our ch ch children. And that creates an agency around what we're trying to do around our disadvantaged pupils too. So assessment, not assumptions, a needs-based approach rather than a labels-based approach is key to success. And that links with the point around sort of expectations and generalizations. The second part of sort of assessment, not assumption, is genuinely genuinely understanding what it means to grow up in a low-income family in our own school community. Do we really understand that? And again, I think this is really difficult to, 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 to do. Um, not making generalizations, not making assumptions like you know, disadvantaged families lack aspiration, those kinds of comments that we hear uh, at times. Do we properly understand how uh, low family income uh, impacts on access to the curriculum, formal and informal, but also my broader e experiences. Of course, understanding isn't enough. It's what we do about uh, that, 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 uh, how things follow. So, um, so culture and expectations values is principle one. Assessment, not assumption, understanding low family income yeah, is, is, is principle uh, two. Um, then we think about how we might want to respond uh, to um, uh, those challenges. Without that really rigorous, deep understanding of the needs of our pupils, if we're not doomed to failure, then we're, we're certainly doomed to difficulty. And when we look at our best practice uh, around addressing disadvantage across the country, your former school, uh, Huntington, uh, uh, Alex, you know, Manchester Communication Academy, uh, Wilbury Primary School um, in Enfield, those schools are taking, I reckon, two, three, four months to understand the challenges their disadvantaged pupils face before they launch into activity. And that's very much why we wanted to take that three-year approach to, a, you know, to building a disadvantaged strategy rather than the one-year cycle, because what we end up with then is the rush to activity, trying to do too much sort of too, too, too quickly. So um, once we have that understanding of the needs of our pupils, we need to think about how we're going to respond through teaching and learning. Yeah, in, uh, how does disadvantage impact on pupils in the classroom? That might be things like oral language, vocabulary gaps, uh, learning behaviours, something and you have an expertise in, Kirsten. My, uh, my, 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 you know, my, my ability to self-regulate my cognition, my, my, my emotions. Those are generalisations. Um, there may be issues around self-esteem, self-confidence, motivation, particularly if I've struggled uh, through the early stages of school, because, of course, we know success leads to motivation. Um, targeted academic support that addresses gaps in learning rather than labels. And we've got to make sure that any targeted interventions are rooted in the needs of our pupils. We can't have an intervention that looks for pupils. It needs to be uh, the other way around, and it needs to supplement uh, high-quality experiences in the classroom, recognising um, that the most effective approaches around disadvantage are about giving teachers and support staff the professional development, the capacity, the expertise, the knowledge around how to support our disadvantaged pupils. So if we recognise that our disadvantaged pupils have underdeveloped oral language, that's about how do we develop that practice across the school community around oracy yeah, and language uh, development. The third part of this is what in the tiered model we call wider approaches. 
But I think we need to be a bit more intentional about that and talk about personal development and pastoral care. In all the schools that have visited, all those schools that I've found that are really effective at around disadvantage, addressing disadvantage, they have exceptionally high quality pastoral care and a really strong intentional personal development uh, strand. The personal development strand, I think, is absolutely critical because we know, don't we, we look at the data that even when disadvantaged pupils attain well, they still don't perhaps go on to the higher education opportunities, the employment opportunities those grades uh, would, uh, would, would, would deserve. So sitting underneath those um, approaches are some principles around uh, early intervention. I think that's something that's really easy to say. And often we're not really clear about what we mean by it. Um, it isn't just about early years. Um, we've seen some fantastic uh, early intervention around maybe identifying what our disadvantaged pupils' interests and motivations are and making sure that children have access to extracurricular clubs as a result of understanding that in interest. That's early intervention. It may be a really uh, evidence-informed reading intervention in Key Stage 3. We need to have a clear and agreed language around what we mean by early intervention, that our approaches are informed uh, by research evidence and that we use research evidence to challenge our thinking, not to justify it. This is something that you know, I know colleagues, you uh, at the EF have talked about for a long time. It's pretty easy, isn't it, to find some evidence to justify something we want to do. Um, it's much more complex to use it in a way that challenges our thinking and our own sort of biases. And that our efforts to address disadvantage look to improve pupils as learners. Um, we need to help children to be more effective learners, developing their oral language, uh, their communication, improving their reading uh, comprehension, improving their self-regulation skills, helping children to be better learners. So that's the third principle around how we respond. And then finally, some really clear thinking around dispassionate impact evaluation. Again, uh, focus on improving children's learning outcomes. We often conflate impact evaluation with activities taking place. Those activities might be helpful to impact, but they're not impact in, in, in itself. And, and recognizing um, you know, it's, it's really difficult to be dispassionate about impact when you're really invested in a particular approach. And aligned with that, your rigorous um, implementation frameworks. And I think you know, the, the, you know, the, um, the forthcoming uh, EF, the updated implementation guidance, is going to be really, really powerful in supporting this work. Because I think when we see schools really struggling around disadvantage, it's not really about the activities they adopt. It's a lack of a clear implementation framework and actually trying to do too many things at once um, rather than something that's really tightly aligned to people's needs and that we're clear around what we're going to stop doing and not you know, sort of launch at any uh, one, uh, one time. All of these things are really, really hard. I think they're really hard. They're easy to talk about in a podcast or in a conference or write in a book, but they're... Um, but we know that we can make a difference uh, around these. The key messages, I think, and something that I very much learned from Jonathan Sharples and, uh, uh, and, and other colleagues is this notion of the practitioner being the intervention. Nelly um, isn't the intervention, it's the practitioner that implements it uh, that makes uh, all, uh, all, all, all the difference, which is why coming back 
square in the circle, that collective responsibility for addressing disadvantage across the school community is, 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 is fundamental. Thank you, Mark. That's, that's really rich. Uh, so much in that. Um, I think that final point about kind of Nelly and kind of programs. So Nelly's the Nuffield Early Language Intervention, which is shown to be really positive, particularly for disadvantaged pupils, which is you know quite rare, isn't it, to have that kind of evidence corroborated and repeated so strongly. But you, you know the, the reality there about kind of people having to enact that and and fit it into this complex picture that you describe. Thank you. Yeah, huge amount in there. Julia, something that really stuck with me was when you mentioned schools taking three to four months to get to know those children and those families. And that's a real challenge, isn't it? And, and a really good one for us to say, you know, where are we? Where are we? How are we doing that? How are we having those conversations? How do we understand the role of pupils, of families, of teachers, of school leaders in all of that? And I'm really interested to pick up on the pupil premium policy itself. So, you know, thinking about how this is enacted in school, how it can support that process, where the challenges are. So, yeah, it'd be great to get your views on that, Mark. So, um, so. I think it's the best policy ever, Kirsten. Uh, and, and, and I won't just leave that sort of hanging there. I'll explain why. I mean, I think the issue, the, the underachievement uh, um, of uh, children from low-income backgrounds is, you know, it's, it, well, it's a really complex, you know, multifaceted issue. And, uh, and But what I'd argue is that um, the more complex the communities that we're serving, uh, the, the, um, the more clarity, um, um, the more precision we need in, in our approaches, because schools can't solve all of society's problems. They really, really can't. And some of the schools I've had the privilege of visiting, Wilbury Primary School in North London, in, in, in Enfield, Manchester Communication Academy, in our research school network, they're, they're serving hugely complex uh, communities, but it, the, the same can apply whether in, when we're serving relatively affluent uh, sort of communities as well. Around what does it feel like to grow up poor yeah, in, more, in more affluent communities? And what the pupil premium policy does is it creates a universal language uh, for us across our school uh, system around um, the importance, the prioritization of children. You know, who for lots of complex reasons may find accessing school uh, more difficult, uh, may find you know, success in the classroom more difficult uh, to, 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 to come by. Um, it's the, the policy is, 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 has the potential to be hugely powerful because it recognizes um, and challenges. One of the mantras that we've heard a bit, I think, over the last 10 to 12 years, that it's just quality first teaching. Now, undoubtedly, high quality, inclusive teaching in the classroom is fundamental to the success of our children from low income backgrounds. But it's not enough on its own. Um, and, 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 and I think the EF guidance on that has been really, really powerful in articulating that point. The reason the policy um, I, I think has huge potential and has had impact in lots of cases, is it focuses the accountability on individual children. 
And that means that we avoid generalizations and assumptions around children. When we think about our disadvantaged pupils, you know, in, uh, in Huntington School, we're thinking about individual children, their backgrounds, their experiences, and thinking about how do I respond to this if I'm, you know, an early career teacher uh, teaching history uh, in, in the school. So it focuses on the individual rather than sort of area-based sort of programs that make uh, generalizations. I think the pupil premium, uh, the, 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 the need to publish your strategy uh, online is really, really important. I know lots of people don't agree with me on that, but I think it provides a really, really interesting window and insight into the school's understanding of the challenges faced by uh, children from low-income backgrounds, the school's ambitions uh, for those children, and how we're going to respond to it. It tells us a lot about the care and the precision by which we go about uh, these, uh, the, these things. Um, of course, we don't transform educational outcomes by, for children by what we publish on our websites. But it gives us a really interesting insight into the depth of thinking around the challenges that children uh, from disadvantaged backgrounds face and how we're going to uh, respond to it. Um, you've supported so many colleagues and, and, as you said, had the privilege of seeing so many settings across the country. I just wonder if there's a couple of really concrete examples of where settings have had really effective use of that pupil premium funding and maybe where everybody understands their role within that. Yes, yes. I, you know, I'll, I'll use, um, well, I'll give, I'll, I'll give a, a primary example, a primary example and, and, a, and a secondary example, if that's okay. I'm going to go back to colleagues at Manchester Communication Academy that I've, you know, I've, I've known for, for some time, but had the privilege of visiting last year you know, in East Manchester serving you know, a really complex you know, and, and, and a complex community. Many of the pupils, indeed, the vast majority of the pupils have, uh, have experienced you know, socioeconomic disadvantage and other challenges you know, as, as, uh, uh, as well. Um, from the moment, um, well, from the moment I read documentation on the school's website, but stepping into the school um, in the morning, the way that adults communicated with pupils uh, uh, was inspirational. Um, that sort of collective buy-in um uh around children's lives and, and and growing up in 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 that community was quite exceptional now it might not be obvious how that relates to how we spend the pupil premium funding but it shows around how uh, school leaders there have been really intentional whether i'm you know sitting on reception whether i'm a, 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 a first year ect whether i'm a member a curriculum leader a past member of the past four team we have a collective understanding about how disadvantage impacts on children's learning. Um, we have a collective understanding about how the school is looking to respond to those ch ch challenges. And I, as a practitioner, member of support staff, understand what my role is within it. There's a really strong uh, focus on evidence-informed professional development for teachers and support uh, staff. Um, uh, the school have been really intentional about some of the things that they're going to stop doing because it hasn't had the impact that it might have done. But also the really powerful thing there, I thought, at that school was staff's interactions with each other. They all had a really strong knowledge of what their colleagues did 
what their strengths were and how they contributed to the broader strategy, um, um, but also um, had a great deal of respect for each other's uh, roles and, 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 and their work. And that was not performative. It was absolutely not p- performative. Also, the way that staff had been trained and developed to interact with pupils was just quite extraordinary. Um, uh, it really reminded me uh, of, you know, within the secondary phase, even in Key Stage 4, of a really high-quality early years setting around how teachers and supports have leaned into children, standing over them, you know, getting down and, and, and discussing lots of sort of social uh, in, in interaction. What was also sitting around that was, you know, a really strong theme around personal development, uh, um, around pupils' communication and language uh, skills, high quality, you know, work experience opportunities for pupils that didn't have lots of social uh, capital because of their, you know, their their, their, their prior experiences, and um, and a pastoral team that had been heavily invested in, heavily, heavily invested in to make sure that pupils, you know, um, felt a really, really strong sense of bit, bit, bit belonging uh, and uh, and inclusion there. That's a really interesting one. Thank you, Mark. Um, keep on doing um, the brilliant work that you do at, at Unity Schools Partnership and um, engaging with so many schools in this work. It's incredibly valuable. Um, and I know people regularly feedback about the privilege of hearing from you. And I just echo that for the podcast. So thank you. Thank you. I'm delighted to introduce our third and final guest, Jill Ferns, who's Director of Lancashire Research School. Uh, Jill, can you just talk a little bit about yourself and your background, please? Uh, yes, thanks, Alex. So I am absolutely privileged to be class teacher and deputy head teacher of a small primary school um, in East Lancashire called St Mary's Primary School. Predominantly my career I've taught in year six and schools I've worked in have always been in areas of high deprivation. So breaking this attainment gap between advantage and disadvantage is something that is absolutely key to my role um, and is a passion that we have here at St Mary's. I absolutely love my job. I think it's just the most magical role that you can have. What an honour that as practitioners we get the chance to shape and influence our children. I recently had the pleasure of listening to Ron Berger and he was talking about shaping our children to become great human beings who do great work and what an honour and privilege that is and not and even more so for our disadvantaged learners so yeah really love my job love the role and the role of research school has really allowed us here at St Mary's to enhance our practice and ensure that for our disadvantaged learners we definitely are giving them the best provision possible. Thanks Jill um it's good to have that positivity. Sometimes we kind of we get mired in some of the realities of recruitment, retention, and the challenges. But it's lovely to hear that. Um, I've also had the privilege of of going to St Mary's. It's a great little school, really passionate staff. Um, so I can imagine yeah, it's a real joy. Thank you. It would be great to kind of chat around understanding disadvantage in your setting. When we heard from Mark earlier, he was talking about school spending three to four months. That's kind of stayed with me, that amount of time to really understand disadvantage in your setting. So it'd be great if you could talk to us about your specific school perspective. Yes, I think here for us at St Mary's, 
we do kind of take that viewpoint of what disadvantage. So that's not to be ignorant, but having that viewpoint that all children will have exactly the same possibilities. So it's kind of a backward way of looking at it rather than automatically labelling our children with certain uh, barriers. Let's say, right, let's label all our children as high attaining, brilliant human beings. And what, what barriers are there that we can potentially remove to ensure that they can become the very best version of themselves? And for us to diagnose our challenges, and I love that that Mark says he takes three to four months. Absolutely, there's a time investment. But for us, it's constantly changing that view and that picture of disadvantage for us in our setting is a constantly emerging um, and developing picture. We can't really have the same assumptions that perhaps we had in the past because, you know, cost of living crisis, some for us, some of our, our families who were hoping really well now aren't. So that it's a real dynamic picture um, for us of disadvantage. It's that profile's just always changing. So for us, we do have that real initial understanding that we develop in all of our staff of what disadvantage is, but we really are constantly reviewing that and being constantly adaptive in the provision that we have for our pupils. Um, I know Alex said when he came, he could sense the passion of our staff and that is absolutely key. We are blessed, but it's because we have that relentless drive to continually improve what we offer our children. Um, and again, I was reading some of the work of Gary Orban in terms of what he talks about SEND with this um, automatic door approach. So for children with SEND, having this automatic door approach is absolutely essential because if you're somebody with a physical disability, those doors will automatically need to be opened for you. But if you're a child who's non-SEND, then that is still helpful. And I think we have that same view, really. We view disadvantage through the same lens. So what, what we put in place to address the challenges that we have are beneficial for all pupils. And I think for us at the minute, yes, there's those very practical barriers, um, low income, struggling to feed, to clothe the children. But particularly for us at St. Mary's, it's kind of around mental health and mental health of our families. For our children, they are often the main support for their parents and families that are dealing with mental health. And that is a lot to be dealing with at age five, six, you know, all the way through to 11. The impact of that on the children is huge when they are acutely aware that their parent is not having a great time, that they are really struggling to have a positive outlook. So for us, our provision in terms of social and emotional learning is just embedded in all that we do. Yes, it's taught explicitly, but it's integrated into all teaching and learning and completely permeates our whole school ethos, really. Um, so that is the main barrier for us is around mental health and obviously not just educating the children into how to support their wider family, but how to protect themselves and how to have that mental health wellness Thanks, Jill. You, you talk about constantly coming back and challenging your own assumptions, I guess, and, and re-looking at the picture and really nicely describe that as quite an iterative process. 
And also I was struck, you know, the, the communication with staff, constantly having those conversations. I wonder if you can pick up one example about a positive development that that's happened for some of your pupils. Yeah, so, I mean, we value our staff immensely or, you know, the whole wider staff team because they are the people dealing with these children day in, day out. They are the experts at knowing that ever-changing picture of disadvantage. And I think for us, having that intelligence from our staff enables those things that people think um, are common sense, common sense things that you would do to remove barriers for children. But what's common sense is not always common practice, is it? You know, so for us, we would listen to our staff. And if they were saying, for example, that punctuality was becoming a huge issue for some of our children, and particularly um, we've had this issue lower down the school, particularly with our new reception cohort starting at the moment. You know, this is the cohort of children who didn't go to nursery. And there's a, a lot of separation anxiety, I think, for a lot of parents and children. So with that encouragement to get, them into school if it's appearing that they're not but then by the time they arrive at school it might be half past nine now for those children then they have missed their daily phonics session which tends to take place in those first 30 minutes you know in a, in a school like ours where you've got a real robust systematic phonics system in place the children are taught a sound a day so if you've been late three mornings that week that's three sounds you you've missed so for us you know, hearing that from the staff and hearing that actually punctuality is the issue now, it's not so much and because parents are spending a long time in the morning having very tearful uh, goodbyes and, and struggling to let go of their children. Um, we've actually kind of flipped it on the other side and said to parents, well, actually, OK, school doesn't start at nine o'clock. Um, actually, we'd love your child to come in for a little bit of a play session. Um, could you please drop them off at 20 past eight? And then even if they don't make it for the 20 past eight, you hope that by the time it comes to nine o'clock, those children. So that's a very small example, a, a practical way that we listen to our staff and try and remove those barriers for our children. Yeah, and I think what you're reflecting there around attendance, it's, it's just appearing in, in so many pupil premium strategy statements, those priorities around attendance, around behaviour, around social emotional learning, reading. Um, have you had reflections on that post-COVID reality? Are we still seeing that? Yeah, uh, for us, the, the post-COVID reality is still around um, social emotional learning for us. And like I said, like I've highlighted there, particularly with our new uh, reception group. But, you know, we, we can't underestimate, can we, the fact that children completely lost that ability to socialise and interact with others. So never before did it showcase the importance of that social and emotional learning being absolutely key to a school ethos and a school curriculum. Um, we were really, I had to become as practitioners here, and I know we did nationwide as well, much more adept at assessing children's emotional needs as they you know, arrived at school. But a key change for us, I would say, was really looking at developing that collaborative learning in our school because pupils were not used to working collaboratively. They were in isolation. They lost all of their social skills. So that has been key for us as, as kind of leaders in our school, looking at our curriculum and saying, where are the opportunities actually? Yes, we have a real targeted 
scheme and an approach to how we teach this but where are the opportunities throughout the entire curriculum for the children to work collaboratively to develop the skills that they are so clearly lacking i wonder if we can just pick up what this looks like for small schools um i'm thinking you know particularly with your director of lancashire research school hat on where you're seeing I mean, you have a, a small school but high high numbers of disadvantage are there those schools that, that you're supporting that have those smaller numbers and still trying to make that difference? Yeah, I think there are definitely um, challenges within smaller schools because I'm particularly with small numbers of disadvantage. But I think I'd come back to that point of, you know, what's good for disadvantage is good for everybody. So if you are a school with a small number of disadvantage, you would probably find that a lot of key themes are still true for your advantaged children. So if we take language development or vocabulary acquisition, there's nothing to say that there are children who are advantaged who still don't have those barriers to learning. So I think, again, it comes back to that knowing your children. That's really helpful. I think that sense about kind of a really careful diagnosis of all, all people's kind of barriers to learn, potential barriers to learn. And this point about potential and kind of not having any assumptions feels like it really stands out, whether it's a small school, a big school, high or low, you know, proportion of disadvantaged peoples. Mm -hmm. I think that that kind of stands out. And the dynamic nature and how disadvantaged can kind of change in a school community, you know, with different you know pupils and families. I, I want to move from Lancashire to national with my final question. Um, and it's a bit of a tricky one. And other people have tried to cheat by having more than one um, policy. But if you could implement one national policy because it would be most impactful to reduce disadvantage, what would that policy be? Oh, my goodness, Alex. I mean, I, I have to be honest here and say this has caused some serious deep thinking around this and um, quite heated debates in our staff room because okay. we feel there's so Good. much within our gift to do within, you know, as as yeah. professionals, there's so much within our gift that we can do for our disadvantaged learners. Um, so how do you narrow that down to one? And I, I'm glad you say some yeah, people have yeah. tried to cheat and have two because I've got about six, but I will try and, <laughs> and, and condense. Uh, I think for us, and this was us seeing the wider picture, so obviously we're a primary school setting and we feel that when our children leave us at age 11, that we have we have succeeded in our mission to make these great human beings who do great work and they have that aspiration for later life. But that aspiration for later life, there's a lot of factors that can then go on to affect that not coming to fruition. So I think for us, if we could introduce one national policy, it would be to introduce uh, student grants for disadvantaged children who want to access higher education uh, or any vocational studies. That was kind of our gut instinct because too frequently we hear from past pupils and actually that aspiration that they had other factors have prevented that from happening and one of them massively being actually their ability to fund their further studies so yeah. a huge challenge but yeah i would say as a whole after very heated debate that's as a staff team what we said well what actually how could we ensure that those peoples go on to live out their dream of what they want to become and it would be to have that financial support to support them 
That's really powerful. And what's really interesting as well, as as kind of primary colleagues and yourself having that background, that also you were thinking about a policy that's not related to that phase. It just shows the importance of that continued access, support, provision. You know, it, it starts before children get to school. It's really crucial at early years based on what people are you know, feeding back in this podcast and, and what we think the evidence indicates and it carries on all the way to that further education and, and that ability to have access to learning. So that feels like a, a perfect end uh, to this interview uh, and um, brings together a lot of the themes, actually. So, uh, Jill, thank you. Thank you for all your brilliant work at St. Mary's and the Research School, um, but also thank you for your time today. Thank you so much. Really great to reflect on those three such expert perspectives on understanding disadvantage it feels like you know almost an unmanageable complexity when you first consider it but the concreteness of some of those national policies some of those school practicalities setting issues and challenges and barriers um that's really helped crystallize it that, that step further for me i think that my main takeaway is this point about access it, it kept on coming through um in in those those interviews around access to high quality early years provision and just how crucial those foundations are um i think you know the evidence stacks up in that regard i think policymakers government and schools and settings all recognize that so it feels like we know that and we've just got to kind of you know push all of our chips in there and kind of really you know really concentrate on those efforts but but also what's a doubt is this is about continual support and continued access so if people aren't turning up to school if that attendance is an issue then they're not accessing that high quality learning so it kind of all falls down and then an area we don't perhaps talk a great deal about is is that point in Jill ended on that policy around access to further education, high quality support, support that is both financial and funding, but also is social and about the, the sometimes technical challenging aspect of further education. So we're talking here about early years to far beyond the school gates and, and the power of supporting disadvantaged peoples in that dynamic changing world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think for me, that time taken to understand disadvantage and constantly coming back and self-checking that and checking that with colleagues and, and, and that, that line that Mark uses about assessment, not assumptions, really important that we continually doing that. Um, Jill used a line around common sense isn't always common practice and that struck, struck home to me. So not assuming also that colleagues are in the same position. So real opportunities really concrete things from what we've heard on, on this podcast around seizing opportunities to connect colleagues, building collaboration around this crucial area and, and really making that difference. Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely way to kind of end on and that connecting colleagues point, you know, to deal and support around this complexity needs that collaborative effort. I think mean, Hillary Clinton famously talked about it takes a village um, and I think that's a really good point to end on. Um, that's the end of this episode of the podcast. We hope you found it interesting, um, full of, of expert voices, sharing some really good insights from policy and practice. If you want to hear about you know, other topics, 
on the podcast, please do press that subscribe button. And also for this topic, um, People Premium as a national policy was mentioned a lot. If you Google EEF and People Premium, um, you'll get directed to a lot of our resources, some of which are really fresh, new, updated, popular resources that can help in this area. And, and there'll be other links as well to that work cited by Rebecca and, and the Sutton Trust. Um, so lots to take away from this session. Um, and it just remains for me to say big thank you to Kirsten for co-hosting. Big thank you to my guests and thank you to everyone for listening.